Or maybe you grew up and your family didn't have much and now you have a lot and you want to show that you're not a nobody. Do you change the way that you act around wealthy people? Do you change how you act around attractive people? Were you in the popular group at school so when you meet them you're kind of like, yeah, this is my crowd. Or do you suddenly, it's like you're in year nine again and you suddenly start to get really conscious about how you act. Do you become really almost deferential? What does that say about who we believe we are and who we believe other people are? In this part of the, of the book of James, James is saying to you, if you are someone who has faith in Jesus, you would have shown no partiality. You would have treat people equally. To not consider them as better or worse, but to treat people equally. Because if you understand the gospel, you will see that partiality or favoritism has no place in the life of the believer. That it is actually literally incompatible with the gospel. It's a completely incompatible way of viewing the world and God and people. And that if we really understand who Jesus is and the command to love your neighbor as yourself, then we will be a people who year on year become less and less partial and more and more like Jesus. Let's pray that he would do that work in our hearts today. Father God, we praise you that you are a God who loves unequivocally. That you are a God who has loved us not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of who you are and what you are like. And Father, we pray that as we understand the gospel, the message of Jesus, who laid down his life for us, that we would know that we are called to show no partiality, that we are called to show mercy just as we have been shown mercy, and all that you might be glorified. Amen. Well, how much partiality can a follower of Jesus show? Let's ask James, chapter 2, sentence 1. It'll come up on the screen for you. Here James kicks off this section by saying, my brothers, and he's talking to the church spread out in the whole area. James, we know from history, was based in Jerusalem, that he was a leader of the church there, that he led when, when persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and that he eventually died for his faith in Jesus. But here he's writing a letter because he's concerned for the churches that are scattered abroad. When persecution broke out in Jerusalem, the church spread out through the whole area. They spread up further north and south and further up around through Turkey and into Europe. And as they spread out and churches were planted, he's sending out letters to build them up and to encourage them. And here he says to them, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold out the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So how much partiality can we show? None. That's it. Sermon done. I can finish up now and we're all finished. But there is a little bit more to say on it. And James has a bit more to say on it. And the first question is this, well, what does it mean to be partial? That's not, a, that's not a term maybe that we use that often in conversation. You might have heard people drop it here and there, but what does it mean to show partiality? The, the root word, as you might have noticed, is part, and it's the idea that instead of being whole or balanced, you would kind of be loaded to one side, to one part. You're inclined towards one sort of thing. It's like a, a lawn bowl that kind of leans in one direction. The idea of being partial is that you have a leaning towards something. And it might be something like saying, look, I'm quite partial to a chicken parmi, not parma. Don't get me started on that debate. Or it might be that you, are, you say I'm quite partial to a bunning sauce or something kind of, you know, really inane like that. But it means I have an inclination towards it. I'm favorable towards it. And James says, as Christians, you're to show no partiality. And he doesn't have in mind here your food preferences. He has something far more serious in mind. Look what he says in the following section, James 2 Two to four. He gives an example 
of their gatherings, and they probably gathered on a Sunday just like we do today. And he talks about a situation, a scenario that might happen and probably has happened or is happening in the churches that he wants to address. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, or you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James here gives a real scenario. He's saying you're in your gathering, and as happened in the early church, just like it does today, people hear about this community and what Jesus is doing amongst the community, and they want to join. And so he says someone comes into your gathering, two people actually. One of them is wearing fine clothing. The other is quite evidently poor. And you say to the one in fine clothing, hey, come here, have a seat, and right up the front in a good spot in the gathering. And to the poor man, you say, sit over there or sit at my feet. He says, if you do that, you have become judges with evil thoughts. Now, hearing that, you might be like, that's, whoa, just calm down, James. Like, it's just, it's, sometimes it's just pragmatics. It might be someone you know or, or whatever it is. It's not really that big a deal. But he gives it the language of saying, you've become judges with evil thoughts. Why is he treating this so seriously? He's saying God sees this as a big issue. He says, because what you are doing is you are sitting in a judgment seat and making a judgment about someone's worth in front of you. He says, what you are doing at that point is contending with God. You might remember years ago, or maybe you don't if you're not an NRL fan, but years ago there was some pest who had his, his the one kind of I don't know, prank that he pulled was he would go to games. This was back when they used an air horn to, to end the game. He would go to games, and with about two or three minutes to go, when it was right close to the end, knowing that the players were, were thinking the, the game is about to finish up, he would blow the air horn and try and terminate the game early. And he's, he kind of snuck around and did this over a few games and, just, and got a name for himself being a serial pest until he was caught. But once he was caught, he was banned completely. It may have even been a life ban. You might think, well, why is that so serious? Well, it's serious because he's taking a place that doesn't belong to him. He's stepping into the place of the referee when that authority has not been given to him, and it messed things up seriously for a bunch of teams. What's the big deal with making a judgment between people? It's saying you're stepping into a, a seat of authority that does not belong to you. God alone can make judgments, and we are not allowed to. We're not called to. Not only that, but if God has said that all are made in His image equally as humans worthy of dignity, who are you then to judge people by another scale? James says, this is serious. If you're a follower of Jesus, this kind of behavior does not actually match up with what you say you believe. There's an inconsistency here with what you say you believe about reality and people and how you're acting. But more than that, he goes on to say that actually it's kind of crazy what you're doing. Look at what he says in, in sentences 5 to 7. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. So he loves them. He's speaking to, the, to them lovingly. Remember, this is a loving word from God for us. Beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The gospel grew 
in the first three centuries, largely through the poor and marginalized, to the point where Christianity, which by the, the Roman sort of superiors then was called atheism, ironically enough, but Christianity was considered to be for really the non-elites. In fact, there's a quote from Celsus in the second century, uh, who was a philosopher and a statesman, and he said this, and come up on the screen for you, far from us, say the Christians, be any man possessed of any culture or wisdom or judgment. Their aim is to convince only the worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women and children. These are the only ones uh, who they manage to turn into believers. The wealthy and powerful mocked the followers of Jesus for a good three centuries. And it wasn't just mocking, there was outright state oppression. Christians were tortured or killed even for entertainment. And here James is saying, one, when you do this, when you judge the poor and the rich when they come into your gatherings, one, you act inconsistently with your faith, but two, why are you trying to impress them anyway? I mean, these are the people that drag you into courts, aren't they? Why are you trying to act cool towards them? Why? It's, it's madness in every sense. But isn't it funny, even though this was written sort of, you know, almost two millennia ago, it's funny how little about the human heart has changed. Isn't it the case that we often, even with people who treat us poorly, still want to be in with those who have status? C.S. Lewis gave an address at a college called The Inner Ring, where he described the human propensity to always want to be on the inside of an inner ring in whatever context you're in. But just listen to this as he describes it and see if it doesn't connect to anything you've experienced or done yourself. He says, The inner ring is not a formally organized secret society with officers and rules uh, to which you would be told after you had been admitted. You are never formally and explicitly admitted by anyone. You discover gradually, in almost indefinable ways, that it exists and that you are outside it, and then later, perhaps, that you are inside it. There are what correspond to passwords, but they too are spontaneous and informal. A particular slang, the use of particular nicknames, an elusive manner of conversation are the marks. But it's not constant, and it's not easy, even at any given moment, to say who is inside or outside the inner ring. Some people are obviously in, and some people are obviously out, but there are always several groups on the borderline. And if you come back to the same group after six weeks' absence, you may find that the group is quite altered. There are no formal admissions or expulsions. People think they are in after they have in fact been pushed out or before they have been allowed in. This provides great amusement for those who are really inside. It has no fixed name. The only certain rule is that the insiders and outsiders call it by different names. From inside, it may be designated in simple cases by mere enumeration. It may be called, you and Tony and me. When it is very secure and comparatively stable in membership, it calls itself, we. When it has to be suddenly expanded to meet a particular emergency, it calls itself, all the sensible people in this place. From outside, if you have ever despaired of getting into it, you call it that gang, or they, or so-and-so in his set, or the caucus, or the inner ring. If you are a candidate for admission, you probably don't call it anything. To discuss it with the other outsiders would make you feel outside yourself. And to mention it in talking to the man who is inside, and who may help you if this present conversation goes well, would be madness. 
any school context, any work context, any sporting context, anywhere you've headed to, there's been an inner ring. And if you're honest, at one point or another, you either wanted to or tried to or were a part of it. If you are outside the, the inner ring, you may still want to be in. And that is common to human behavior. In the workplace, study, sporting teams, wherever it is, and even here in this church that James is describing, it's happening. He's saying, look, the, the, the wealthy class are the ones who are oppressing you and dragging you into court, and yet when one of them comes into your gathering, you act all deferential, and you suddenly flip the script, and it's, it's like you, you leave your faith in Jesus behind. He says it should not be the case. James is saying here, if you believe in Jesus, if you understand the gospel, then you are to neither look down on anyone nor be intimidated by anyone. That the follower of Jesus should be in the place where you see people according to the gospel. That you wouldn't be someone who looks down on people and also someone who is not intimidated by others, who doesn't feel either superior or inferior. This is the way of the gospel. And this is incredibly rare, isn't it? It's normally the case that you can manage to feel just one or the other. It may be the case that you feel so badly about yourself that actually you don't struggle with feeling superior to people, but in almost every context you walk in, you're very conscious of your own lack of worth and you quite easily feel inferior to others. Or it's possible that you might be so, your esteem of yourself might be so high that in almost every context you walk into, you feel superior to others. But it's very rare to meet someone who feels neither one nor the other. And James is saying, if you understand the gospel, this is how you ought to act. Look at what he says in 2, 8 to 12. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, sorry, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And if you, commit adultery, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He says, look, when Jesus was pressed on it and they said to him, sum up the whole of the Bible, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He summed up all of the law like that. And James is saying here, look, if you keep the law to love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But the truth is, no one has ever done that. And not only that, if you break part of the law, you're still guilty of the whole. He says it would be madness for someone who is in court, accused of murder and guilty of it, to offer up the defense that they've been a faithful husband. That would be ludicrous. That's how that's irrelevant. You're still guilty. If you've broken this part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. It says, if you've broken the law, you're a lawbreaker, a sinner. And here's the money line. James says, so speak and so act as one who will be judged under the law of liberty. If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you will not be judged according to the law. We know that no one will be justified according to the works of the law. You'll be justified by faith in Jesus who died for you. And so James is saying, so speak and act like someone who actually believes that, who believes that the world is not divided into better and worse people. There are only sinners under the condemnation of God who need the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. That's how we see the world in the gospel. Look what it says in Galatians 
says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, this verse will become particularly relevant next week as we look at something else that James writes, so stay tuned for that. But it's clear in the Bible that no one will stand before God and be able to say, I'm completely innocent. Everyone will have to say that Jesus, I I was a sinner and I needed Jesus' blood and forgiveness that I might be set free. The ground at the foot of the cross is flat. James is saying, if you believe this, then you should treat people as equal. You were shown mercy. You were guilty of sin, helpless and desperate, awaiting the wrath of God, and Jesus stepped in the way and bore your sin. And now you're judged not according to the law of God, but the law of liberty. You've been set free from sin and death, so show no partiality. There is not rich, nor poor, nor educated, nor uneducated, nor moral, nor perverse, nor influential, nor insignificant, nor strong, nor weak. Before Jesus, there are only sinners who need mercy, and he freely offers that mercy. The gospel erases status. And that's why in this passage we read in James 1, 9-10, he says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. The gospel says you're a sinner in need of mercy. And he says for the lowly brother, this is great news, because no matter who you are or what you've done, God loves you. And if you're wealthy and have status in your society... This is kind of bad news because you're a little lower down than you thought. The gospel takes you down a peg and says, actually, as much influence as you had, you can't buy influence with God. He's not impressed by that. And so he says here, the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because both in the gospel are sinners who need mercy. Gospel kills status. The ground at the foot of the cross is flat. But there is one final line, I don't know if you noticed it, there's a sting in the tail of this passage. He gives one final warning here in James 2.13. He says something and puts it pretty strongly. He says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Is James saying here, after having gone through all of this, that actually, if you don't show mercy to other people, then God won't show mercy to you. So ultimately, it is about works. If you are a really merciful person, God will have mercy on you. Well, now it's clear from the teaching of James that that's not what he believes. That it's through faith in Christ that you would come to be saved. What he's saying here is, if you treat people with favoritism, it might reveal the fact that you have never even understood the gospel. Now, it's possible as a Christian to live inconsistently with your beliefs for a time, But he says, over time, if how you act and what you say you believe are not starting to line up, it might be the case that you don't really believe it. If you say, I believe Jesus, I believe that everyone is a sinner in need of mercy, that there is no status or class, that all are helpless before God and need mercy, and yet you treat people with favoritism, that's a mismatch. There are two ways to view the world, and it's this, works or the gospel. Either you believe that what we do makes us good, or you believe that we're all sinners who need mercy. Isn't it the case that the reason that we either look down on people or we're intimidated by people is because we believe in works. We believe what you do is what makes you significant. 
If you believe that working hard is what makes you a good person, who do you look down on? Lazy people. A current affair was built entirely for that worldview. Right? Every week, people who get self-righteous about being hardworking, there's another news story about some lazy layoff who whatever, yada, 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 just to get angry about each week. If you believe success is what makes you a good person, then who do you look down on? Unsuccessful people, people who can't make things happen, losers. If you believe money is what makes you a good person, who do you look down on? People who don't have money, people who didn't invest wisely, people who came from the wrong class of people. If you believe that physical attractiveness, beauty, is what makes you a good person, who do you look down on? The unattractive, the outcast. If you believe that actually that being a good steward of, of the environment is what makes you a good person, then who do you look down on? People with massive carbon footprints, right? Everyone has someone that they look down on. If you believe that works is how you view the world and people, that what you do is what makes you good. But the gospel is... Now, none of us were good enough, but God was. And in his mercy, he sent Jesus to die on our behalf. And so anyone who follows him cannot logically and consistently show any partiality. And if you do, James is saying, look, you may not have ever got the gospel fully. You might have joined a community and been a part of the action, but never really understood what's at the heart of it. Because if you understand what's at the heart of it, it doesn't make sense to show partiality. So what is it to receive mercy? It's to go to God and say, I've got nothing on my own to bring here. I lean fully on, the, on your grace and mercy towards me in Jesus. I'm wretched, poor, twisted, powerless. I have nothing. My soul is broken. And I know what I'm like. And I know that you know what I'm like. But I trust that Jesus' blood was enough for me. That you love me and accept me based on what he has done, not what I have done. James is saying it's impossible to have this frame of mind and still treat people with partiality. Jesus even told a story of a man who owed a king millions of dollars. And the king, instead of throwing him into jail or having him executed, cancels his debt. He immediately walks out into the street and he sees another man walking the other way who owes him a tiny debt and instead calls for him to be imprisoned. The king calls him back together and says, how is it that I would forgive you so much and that you would go out and forgive so little? You now will be in prison. And the whole point of the story is that, is that it's ludicrous. If you were forgiven an enormous debt, it would make sense, it would follow through then to forgive someone else. In the same way, if we've received mercy, it has to transform us to be merciful people, to look out for fellow humans with mercy, Regardless of their circumstance, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, smart, foolish, mean, kind, whoever. Mercy transforms when it's powerful. The early church was known for it. And Christ calls his church to be known for it even today. So the question is, are you merciful? Are there people to whom you extend the same mercy that has been extended to you? I don't want to guilt you into this here. The first response really is to go back to Jesus and see how much mercy has been poured out on us that it might move our hearts to be merciful to the people around us. But as well as that, there might be a few practical things that it might be worth paying attention to, some small steps, not, not some big outrageous act of you know, uh, extraordinary mercy, but just in small ways to be growing as merciful people who show no partiality. 
And the first one we might as well start with is the one that James started with, with the Sunday gathering. When you come into a Sunday gathering, when you meet with the church, or even when you meet in a small group, if you're a part of a missional community here at City Light, are there people that you disproportionately pay attention to than others? Are there people who are more likely to get your time and attention than others? Is it worth asking why? Why do some people get more of your time than others? It might just be a practical thing. Maybe you're just an in-the-moment person, and wherever you sit down, you're next to the same person, you're just in the moment to talk to them. But maybe you've got more time for some people than for others because you consider them more interesting or more akin to your likes. Do you just meet with people who you know well? Because it's easy conversation. James says, show no partiality. If it's your first week here, you're about to get really welcomed after this service. There's going to be a lot of people coming up, shaking your hand. But what about at work? Are there people who you've decided are not worth speaking to? Are there people who are outside the inner ring at work who you know, look, there's not a lot of value in talking to them. In fact, it might exclude me from candidacy to the inner circle anyway. Are there people that you don't bother relating to? There's always one standard person in the office who's incredibly difficult for whatever reason. It might be their fault or not, but who people have learned to avoid. James would say that's not the way of Christ. He says, show no partiality. Even show mercy. Maybe they have done things to deserve that status, and yet that's not how God treated you. So you're not called to treat them the same way either. Is it in other circles? Sport, gym, study, whatever it is. Do you show partiality? Do you disproportionately give attention to particular people? In evangelism, do you only share the gospel with people who you're not afraid of losing status with? That might be revealing our hearts. Do we feel like there are people who are above us or have more power over us and we're afraid of losing footing with them? James has shown no partiality. Anyone who doesn't know Jesus needs his mercy and we need to be putting it out there. Show mercy because we've received mercy. Maybe one other practical way would be getting involved in, in a ministry here at City Light called, called Hands and Feet. My dad uh, heads that ministry up Big props to my dad. Uh, But Claire also has been heading up that ministry. And it's a great ministry here at City Light. Uh, We will get a chance to uh, share conversation and to meet people in the local area who are doing it tough. And so to finish up, uh, we're going to consider, have a, a brief look into this ministry, a little window into it. But I'd love for you to consider whether or not God is maybe calling you to be a part of this ministry. And if so, the person to speak to is either dad or Claire to find out a bit more about it. But any which way you cut it, even if it's not for this, James says, show no partiality. And if you are a follower of Jesus who has been shown mercy, you are called to show mercy.